The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a Spectacular Radio, a Spectacular Spider-Man-related show that start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter, at Spidey Dude Radio, and this show, at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible, as well as Google Podcasts. It helps us raise our vis- visibility and like, share, and subscribe for more at Network, youtube.com slash Network. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and joining us... From her office is my co-host and partner in crime, and there's a lot of crime in this episode, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. Sorry, my internet's at home, so. (laughs) (laughs) And rejoining us is the co-creator of Gargoyles and the supervising producer of the first two seasons, the writer of the SLG comic and the upcoming Dynamite comic, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hey, everyone. And we're very pleased to have with us a longtime writer in television, comic books, Mr. Carrie Bates. Hi, everybody. Glad to be here. So glad to have you, Carrie. Very glad to have you. It's an honor. We do have an episode to discuss, but before we dive into it, Carrie, let's get to know you a little bit. We've heard that you and Greg go way back, long before Gargoyles, even. Yeah, that would be uh, mid-80s at DC Comics. I think we were at the infamous 666 building back then. That's true. On on Fifth Avenue, the Jared Kushner building, (laughs) although it didn't have that name back then. Um, So, Greg, you were, I know when you were originally hired, you were Dick Giordano's assistant, right? Well, no, I was... uh... Uh, the editorial assistant for the whole editorial department, which is a very fancy name for Xerox boy. I was basically <laughs> the guy who Xeroxed everything for all the editors and assistant editors and associate editors. Uh, when I started there, yeah, I, uh, um, I wasn't uh, Dick's assistant, but I was everybody's assistant. Well, I think... Um you weren't so you you didn't officially work just for Denny, but when jobs would arise, you'd do things for Denny, like the other editors. Yeah, I mean it depends which stage you're talking about. I mean, when I started, yeah, I was just xeroxing and mailing things and shipping things, DHL and FedEx, and uh, to you know because we had everything was done on hard copies. It may be hard for our audience to understand, but we had no computers. 
<laughs> right. Literally not. Um, I mean, some of the yeah, younger viewers no, might be... Go ahead. Yeah, there was no e email. There was no... Um, uh, you couldn't ship a page electronically. Um, these were actual pages, and paper had to be shipped to the artists, and scripts had to be shipped. Um, and depending where you were shipping to, you'd use... We had all these rules. I don't remember them all now, but depending on where you're shipping to, you might use FedEx or you might use DHL or you might use UPS or you might use the post office. Um, and it all depended on where it was going, like different artists required different types of things for shipping. And I wasn't actually in the mail room, but I had to prep all these packages and all the labels, you know, so I was just one step removed from the mail room itself and, and then Xeroxing so much Xeroxing. <laughs> that was just, that is, I spent most of my days staying at Xerox, but then later I became an assistant editor for Andy Helfer and Denny O'Neill. And then after that, I became an associate editor. And then after that, I quit. <laughs> but, uh, um, well, yeah, around the time when I met, um, when it was I think met, 85, was it 84? It must have been 85, I'm guessing. Yeah, 85. Late 85. That, that was the pivotal uh, period for me at D.C. because in 83 or 84, whenever they did the crisis, I lost The Flash and Superman like within three, two or three months of each other, so... I had to literally restart my career, so I created a uh, two books. I created Silver Blade, which was a, a limited series I did with Gene Colan, and I got to do Captain Adam. Originally, I don't know if you remember this, Greg, it was only supposed to be a uh, miniseries, like a three or four or five, six issue thing, but the good news was everyone liked what we were doing, so they decided to make it ongoing, but... But that was a point in my career where I was really, uh, you know, struggling just to stay in the game because Superman and Flash, I had been writing exclusively for like, by then, maybe 15 years, if not longer. So Yeah, you have a long run. heck of a run. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, I guess now a long run is considered 15 issues, I guess, with the way the business is now. But Yeah, it's true. But I think when when I first when we got to know each other, I think initially I was trying to get you to be my quote unquote LA advisor for Silverblade, which was a comic book about a uh, old time film star who was reliving his past glories, living up in Sunset Boulevard. And I'd ask Greg yeah, stupid questions fact, like, "Where are the Hollywood Hills? Is there one or two or three? Or... <laughs> I also remember that your original three. title. <laughs> Yes, the original title was The Lord of Sunset Boulevard, right. The Lord of Sunset Boulevard, and I said, that makes him sound like a pimp. And you weren't wrong. Yeah, so, so uh, and I think from there, because I was doing Captain Adam, it just kind of naturally went from one thing to the other. And then after a couple of issues... Um, where you were helping out as consultant, then you started getting uh, official credit in that capacity as well, and then we were off and running. Uh, yeah, I think that initially Kenny didn't want me to get credit on it, uh, and then at some point, um, I think there was one issue where I usually I was just you know co-plotting with you, but I think there was one issue where I actually wrote the dialogue, and at that point even Denny couldn't. Um, justify keeping my name off the book <laughs> when I was the one writing the actual dialogue. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we just became writing partners on that. And, and uh, then uh, my first animation script I, we partnered on uh, was an episode of Gem and the Holograms.
know if you remember that, but we wrote an episode of Gem and the Holograms for like Roger Slifer. I can't remember. I feel like it was Roger. Didn't didn't we do a Transformers too? Or am I having a we flashback? on a whole bunch of shows, including Transformers and what was that horse show? Uh, some show uh, about a horse, magical horse. Um, you got me. But anyway, we just kept pitching premises and premises and premises and not getting, uh, you know, no one bit. And then finally on Gem and the Holograms, uh, we sold one and wrote the script. And I remember very clearly thinking, oh, when this comes out, then I'll have a TV career. Of course, thinking it would lead <laughs> to all this stuff. Of course, it led to literally zero, nothing whatsoever. But uh, at the time, it was a big deal. Well, every journey starts uh, somewhere, right? And then you got Superboy. Well, yeah, and then and then I had to uh, literally move to Florida for Superboy. Captain Ann was still ongoing, and then I'm not sure, were there any kerfuffles about you taking over completely, or did we just said this is the way it's got to be, or did Denny just say, okay? I think by, I think by then Denny was okay with it. Um, and it's just sort of like our roles reverse. Like at the beginning, you were basically writing the book, but I was just co-plotting with you. And then at the end, it was the other way around. I was writing the book, but you were co-plotting with me because you were pretty busy on Superboy. I recall it so long ago, but I think so. Right. It seemed that way to me. And, and then the book lasted another two, one or two years after that, right? So by the time it ended its run, it had a good four or five years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I did 50 well, we did, in our various permutations, 50 issues, of it, plus a couple of annuals. So um, divide that by 12, and that's how many years that we did the book. So it's like just over four. Yeah, that sounds years. about right. And then, and then and jumping ahead. I was ahead. still doing Captain Adam when I... I was still doing Captain Adam at the beginning of my time at Disney. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, so you were literally freelancing as a Captain Adam at night and Disney by day? Or? Yeah. At just for There wasn't a lot of overlap, but there was a little. Tell them about you. Tell them about Superboy and then where you did. For, or tell them how you got into the business in the first place. Got, you got what? Starting comics. Oh, how, yeah, how where, I started? Where was the very beginning? Oh, oh dear. That was. <laughs> well, <laughs> now I'm going to be revealing my age, but. I'm not going to say how old I'm, you just have to figure it out. But anyway, I started writing comics in like 1966 when I was very, very young. Uh, but uh, yeah, I started as a, I wanted to be an artist when I was a teenager. And I would draw cover ideas. And uh, one summer I took 20 covers to Mort Weisinger and 20 to Julie Schwartz. And they liked, they liked a lot of my ideas, but... Um, I wasn't getting any money for it because the art was frankly pretty pathetic, but it occurred to me that the ideas were probably better than the artwork that accompanied it. So I, I eventually started to try to, I tried to write a script based on one of my covers that they did like, and they bought the uh, story. So once I actually got money, I realized there's a better path to making a living trying to be an artist instead just be a writer because that's what they're paying you for. They don't give a shit about your artwork. So for the next two or three years, every story I wrote, I would draw my own covers for it. Of course, they'd have to redraw it with real artists. But um, finally, I just gave up the drawing altogether and just became a full-time writer. But that was in the late 60s. And then uh, I just kept writing. Like I said, Superman and Flash both lasted into the early 80s. And by then, I was in my early 30s. And... Uh, when I lost the Superman and Flash franchises, I had to reinvent my career, like I said. So I did Silver Blade, Captain Adam, and a book for Epic for Archie Goodwin with Keith Giffen called Video Jack. And then a few years after that, Superboy cropped up because I had met Ju I met Ilya Salkine in London because Superman 3 was having difficulties with the uh, Salkines in the studio. So... I finagled my way to be the DC representative, quote unquote, and they sent me to uh, Pinewood Studios, and I met Richard Lester and the Newmans and 
Ilya Stalkind, and it was a big disaster because nobody wanted to get notes from D.C., let alone from me. But um, that weekend of hell paid off years later because when Superboy was in production, they were again having problems with D.C., and I wrote a letter uh, to Ilya just saying, hey, remember me, I could maybe offer some suggestions here and there, and that sort of led to me being hired. So uh, I had to leave New York, go to Florida, and I became a story editor on Superboy in its second season. And that's sort of uh, when Greg took over completely on Captain Adam. And then after two seasons of Superboy, um, I worked on a movie that Salkinds did called Christopher Columbus that didn't really make much of an imprint, didn't do well. And and, uh, it was actually the same summer our movie came out a Ridley Scott version of the same story came out called 1492, that bombed too. And then I kind of realized my days in Florida were numbered, so I was looking to the West Coast. And having been in L.A. a couple of times, I I really hated L.A. traffic, which, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like now. We're talking about, you know, early 90s, and even that was too much. So I ended up in Northern California in Berkeley. And that's about the time, I guess, Greg was starting on Gargoyles. And then I'm not quite sure how you hired me or what that conversation was like, but the good news was it was pretty convenient because I just hop on the shuttle and fly down to, uh, you know, Burbank. Yeah, didn't you, like, stay at our house? like or, or Yeah, oh, yeah, a couple of – yeah, I think I, – I was in that guest house on, on one of my trips. I don't remember which one. But um, I guess that wasn't that unusual back then because uh, it's not like it is now with telecommuting. But um, I, I couldn't have been the only writer that came in from out of town, or maybe I was. I'm not sure how animation was back then. But um, I think I mean we had done the first season with Michael Reeves as story editor, and then the first six episodes of the second season we had started writing before we got an actual pickup. My boss Gary Kreisel at uh, anticipated that eventually he, he was pretty sure, not 100% sure, we'd at least get a pickup. So he gave us six scripts or the money to write six scripts. Um, and, you know, worst case scenario from his point of view is if he had to write off the cost of those six scripts, he would. But uh, he figured, and he was right, of course, that we'd get a second season. And so he, uh, we just got a jump start on those. So those six were also just done with Michael as the story editor. But once we got the order for 52 episodes for season two, keeping in mind we'd only done 13 for season one in the same amount of time as we were being offered, um, I knew we had to expand the story editing staff, not just the writing staff, but the, the quantity of story editor and teams. And um, so mathematically it just meant we needed to have, instead of just Michael, we needed four story editors. So, um, obviously Michael would be one. And then, um, Bryn Chandler Reeves, uh, who was, um, not incidentally, uh, Michael's wife, but also an incredibly talented writer in her own right had done such a great job writing for us on the first season that we promoted her to story editor for season two. And then Gary Sperling um, was on staff at Disney and had, was just coming off some show or another and was available. And I thought Gary was fantastic. So he became the third. And then the question was, okay, but we need a fourth. And who's that going to be? And, you know, I was a new producer. I didn't know at the time a ton of writers in the animation business, but obviously I knew Gary. And Carrie had all the qualifications to been a story editor on Superboy. Um, you know, he knew the genre that we were writing in. And so I said, Can, you know, let me get this guy. And I called Carrie. I mean, my bosses were fine with it. I didn't tell them that you didn't live in L.A. <laughs> I think if I had, that might have been a problem back then. Obviously, now no one would think twice about it because none of us go to the office anymore. Um but back then, it might have been an issue, so I just think I didn't tell them. Um, and I called you, and I said, look, you know, most of what you do, you can do from home, but we have a meeting about once a month, a story meeting. You'd have to fly down here once a month and 
you know, you'd have to pay for it, it would, you know, out of whatever you're making from us. And, you know, so I, I feel like you just looked up what are the plane flight costs from San Francisco or Oakland to LA. And it was like, not that much money. So it's like, yeah, I could afford to do that once a month, fly round trip. And yeah, I definitely then, came out ahead. <laughs> yeah. So it, uh, and then the other thing was, this is what I remember is that, you know, you were a story editor. So in theory, um, you know, uh, all of our story editors also wrote, but most of them also used other writers and you didn't, you just wrote all your own episodes. So you got true. Uh, sort of, uh, double paid on it, on it all. Um, well, my, my story is I didn't yeah. know any other writers. Uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> and then this episode, silver Falcon, um, Obviously, by this time, Carrie, uh, this was the first, you know, non-Michael Reeves episode. Um, but by this time, Carrie had come down and been to his first story meeting and um, with Michael and Gary and Bryn and myself and Frank Parr, who was the other producer. Um, and we would have these meetings where we would talk about the next, you know, group of stories and sign out, you know, a springboard or, or two to each of the story editors, depending on the schedule. And, um, and so this wound up being, uh, Carrie's first script. And my memory is, is that, um, watching it last night was that, oh yeah, you wanted to start, you wanted to, you know, dip your toe in and not dive into the deep end right away. So, you know, we didn't, give you six gargoyles and, and everything to have to learn them all, all at once. So you just started with a very focused Broadway Elisa story, um, with a sort of cool noir feel to it, which was kind of up your alley. It felt, it felt to me watching again last night, like a very Carrie Bates story. <laughs> I don't well, know if you've I, seen it recently. Yeah. I watched it last night too. And, and what, I remember now is that, as you know, Greg, I won the comic book Silver Blade. Uh, there was some film raw stuff in there too, and the, and the Maltese Falcon was a pivotal plot point, or something that looked like the Maltese Falcon. And I guess that right, yeah. led to Silver Falcon, and and both were like you know um, mock MacGuffins. It, 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 neither one was what it was supposed to be, but it yet was the it was the peak, the pivot of the story was around these two uh, so-called priceless items. So that's where that came from. And I'm pretty sure I always wanted to do the uh, parallel thing of Broadway watching an old scene from a movie where the old Sam Spade line about when somebody goes after your partner, you have to do something. We, we see it in the opening scene with the TV show and then at the end of the episode when it's Broadway going after the bad guy. He kind of echoes the same line. And and I think that was the thing I was, you know, Ilya Salkine, we used to do Superboy shows. He would always refer to something that he'd say, this, this script, this story has an engine that propels it. And it, if it's not the theme, it's the thing that makes it worth doing or writing or whatever. And, and I guess in this instance, the uh, parallel thing with the, when, somebody does something to your partner, you have to do something about it. That was sort of the engine for me anyway in, in this episode. And and all the other stuff kind of fell in between the cracks between those two bookends. Yeah. I mean, I think that... Uh, we're, we're, I mean, we were dealing with like a bunch of different partners in this in this episode too. You know, like mm -hmm. Elisa's looking for Matt, who's her partner, and then we've got Broadway, you know, who wants to partner up with Elisa. So, like, very partnery. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's and, the theme. <laughs> I mean, back in the well, no, days, I, I, I just, I, 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 I liked seeing, I liked seeing the difference between these partners and how they work together. Yeah, yeah. That, but that was the idea. In those days, I was very big on themes. Um, and so it was like variations on a theme. Show me all these different, show me the partnership between Mace Malone and, and Dominic Dracon. Show me the partnership between Dominic Dracon and his grandson, uh, Tony, you know, showing the partnership between Matt and Elisa, the partnership between Elisa and Broadway, you know, 
Lisa's reluctance to have a partner at all and how that affects the story um, in ways both positive and negative. So we just kept running that through um, ad infinitum, you know, kind of. Um, So I'm glad that worked for you because it was very conscious, you know, to try and uh, theme the damn thing up all around that. and, and it was fun, you know, it, it's tough in a show that's in color, other than that one movie clip that Broadway's watching. It's t- sometimes tough to do noir in color, but Frank, who directed this, did, I think, a really great job at setting this noir mood when Matt gets kidnapped, when, uh, you know, uh, Broadway takes down Dracon and all, all, a lot of stuff in between. There's this great sort of noir feel of the whole thing um, that uh, can be really tough to achieve and when you because we just think of noir as black and white and so the right. color cartoon the color you know afternoon cartoon people come home from school and sit down and watch TV you're not expecting a little noir movie a little 24 minute noir movie you know I thought it was really cool that you gave Broadway the a solo. He was the first Garwell to get one. I mean, Goliath has one down the line, but it also showed the strength of the characters. I mean, now I think any of the main cast could carry an episode or a story all by themselves. So it um, it really showcased the strength of the cast that you built. Yeah. I mean, um, Carrie and I were used to that. We once did an entire issue of Captain Adam where we went out of our way so that other than the cover which was a picture of Captain Adam with a big, you know, circle through a line through it. And the, right. the caption on the cover was like, Captain Adam does not, you know, other than the big logo at the top of it, it was like Captain Adam, big logo, right? Does not appear in this comic book. And we did an entire issue with his supporting castle without him in it at all. And that was so much fun for us. So this kind of thing of building these big ensemble casts and building them strong enough so that, you know, any one or two characters could carry the day, uh, so to speak, the night, I guess I should say, uh, you know, that was just fun for us, but it was also, it's almost like we had trained for it on Captain Adam, which had a very sort of similar structure to it. You know, one lead figure, Captain Adam himself, like Goliath is in the show and this, ever-increasing, you know, concentric circles of supporting cast that, that grow around them. Well, well, Greg, you and I used to talk all the time about the uh, similarities between General Ealing, who is Captain Adam's nemesis, and uh, the character's name escapes to me. Right. That, that they were, you know, both from the same mold, and, and I guess in a bizarre way you could almost exchange some of their lines in different scripts. Yeah, I think the idea we based both of those characters on, um, although David was much more charming, Wade was more of a bull in a china shop kind of approach to things, you know, uh, you know, sort of bulldoze his way through things, whereas David was always more charming about it. But the idea behind both of them was this one sentence, which was, what if Captain Kirk were the bad guy? You know, um, now what if you had a guy with that kind of uh, energy and that kind of uh, refusal to lose? You know, um, he doesn't believe in the no-win situation. That kind of attitude. And what if instead of giving that to the hero, you gave it to the villain? Or villain, maybe not the right word, but the antagonist. To the right. hero. Um, what if you gave that Captain Kirk attitude? And I think Ealing was a step in that direction. And then David sort of brought in all of Kirk's charm as well, you know, because Kirk could be very charming. Right. Um, and David sort of achieved that, obviously, with a lot of help from Jonathan Frake's performance. But, uh, but, you know, the more Jonathan performed it, the more we would write toward that. And uh, it just became this guy who who was both uh, 
charming and almost undefeatable because he had so many backup plans and that kind of thing. And that idea of the backup plans and everything, that was also very general healing. That was very much part of how uh, Carrie and I worked that character as well. Yeah, I mean, when villains are that maniacal and Machiavellian, it's just more fun to write them when, when no matter what situation you put them in, they're going to have a way to get out of it, which makes it harder for you because at the end of the day, somewhere along the line, they've got to trip up or, or you've got a, a villain that's never stopped. But Yeah, I, you know, a lot of... It, it's always great when you've... Uh, written some when you've created something that makes your life harder (laughs) (laughs) love it (laughs) like okay this is challenging oh good it's challenging now we have to live up to it (laughs) i will say i do want to say one thing about this story that i had forgotten but i was sort of reading up on it yesterday there's one sort of brilliant thing in this episode that didn't come from carrie or myself um there's this guy who's now a, a fairly prolific writer and story editor in his own right named Eddie Guzalian. But at the time, Eddie was just like a junior development guy at Disney. And it was Eddie's idea to make G.F. Benton the accountant and Dominic Dracon the same guy. Um, that in the original version of the story, the old man at the, the old accountant was just an old accountant who was a fan of Mace Malone. And, uh, and he wasn't, uh, secretly Dominic Dracon. Those were two separate characters. They were both in it. Right. Two separate characters. Yeah. I had forgotten that that too. too, And when I was watching Uh it last night, I realized it gave Darren McGavin more to do because as you noticed, obviously the way he modulated his voice, he was more kind of creaky as the supposed old accountant. Then when he became his real self, he was a little more forceful. Yeah. He went from the feeble to the strong. Yeah. Right. And then he can sort of becomes broken at the end, which is, I mean, Darren was great. Uh, you know, and I'd been a huge fan of Darren McGavin's from the Night Stalker um, TV show and seen him in a, a lot of other stuff. He was actually the original Oscar Goldman in the pilot for Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was like a huge fan, and then Jamie got him. As usual, Jamie was just like, well, let's just see if we can get him. And I'd be, you know, it was the same thing with Asner and with various other people where it's like, oh, we'll never get that person. Uh, John Reese Davies, come on. Guy was just in Raiders of the Lost Ark. We'll never get John Reese Davies. Oh, yeah, we got him. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Nichols. We'll never get Michelle Nichols. Oh, yeah, we got her. (laughs) Um, You know, and so we just, Got him, but yeah, it was a much better part because he was playing both sides of that, and it also made the mystery much better and much cleverer, and um, gave sort of everybody their moment. Uh, Matt gets to punch out Pal Joey for blowing up his apartment. Um, Broadway takes down Dracon, that is Tony Dracon, and then Elisa still has to deal with Dominic Dracon at the end. And uh, so the mystery is better, but that just came from Eddie. And it, my memory is, is that Eddie suggested this, and my initial reaction was, uh, I, I don't want to do that, just because what a hassle. We'd already written it. <laughs> but then, you know, <laughs> you sort of stop and you go, oh, wait, no, that is a much better idea. We should do that. <laughs> you have to, my knee-jerk laziness sometimes gets in the way. <laughs> Olympia Savage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, not to be crass, but didn't you save money not having to hire a bit player to do the accountant? No, probably not, because we probably would have, we probably, in other words, we get two voice, a, a second voice for free. Oh, I know so, that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I could have had some 
one who was already in the cast just do the account as a second voice. Hell, we could have had Darren do it as a second voice, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was just, you know, obviously the story was just much better with that. So it wasn't an economic decision for once. Um, It was, (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, we had fun with uh, Michael Bell played uh, Martin Hacker, the FBI agent who has a really small part in this episode that we liked. But even when I think in this one, when we planted in there, we sort of, yeah, let's just make him seem like a pretty normal, decent guy in this episode, and then we'll make him craftier and sneakier when we actually do do an Illuminati story. That was the whole thing. The misdirection for most of this episode is, Matt's been after the Illuminati, so we think, oh, we're doing an Illuminati episode, and then we reveal, no, it wasn't. It was just a... I had written in my notes that what seems to be the very first Illuminati episode not being an Illuminati episode is the most Illuminati thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got that. We're behind all that. (laughs) Right, right. that that was their clever plan all along, yes. (laughs) And the Illuminati thing, that came from Reeves. I mean, you know, that was, again, uh, Michael would do things really smart things, but like in throwaway lines. It's like, you know, his line about the Emir, which I picked up on, and then later we brought in the Emir. And then he had this idea of Matt being this conspiracy theorist kind of guy. So he threw in a line about the Illuminati. And then, you know, I would go, well, we should do the Illuminati. And sometimes Michael would be like, yeah. And sometimes he'd be like, oh, come on. I just put that in. And I would go, but we should do it now. And he's like, all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like this episode had a lot of little touchstones to prior things like the Illuminati, but even Broadway just being a big movie fan, black and white movie fan, you know, we'd shown that and showdown, which was his last sort of time hanging out. Uh, that is in deadly force. He was just hanging out at Elisa's apartment and here he is doing that again, and he was hanging out there after having seen the movie, the Western, black and white Western showdown, and now he's hanging out watching this gangster movie that he has on VHS. Yeah, <laughs> we can't bring it back to the I remember now. VHS. Yeah, yeah, at least it wasn't Betamax. Listening <laughs> 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 to music on 8-track, but... Um, <laughs> For the con- continuity, I'd love that we get to see Elisa is now keeping her gun in a lockbox. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's keeping it in a lockbox. Um, I mean, and all that was us you know, very consciously always trying to, <laughs> trying to advance the characters. Broadway's learning to read, you know, uh, clearly isn't, doesn't come easy to him yet, but he, he can do it. He can read. And that was, you know, an advance from where we had seen him last time. And, um, uh, the movie, you know, so there were all sorts of little things in this episode where we were really trying to, you know, keep the world cohesive and coherent and, um, and feel like, you know, characters were advancing and things were changing and that things that had happened before really had an effect. So that it wasn't just, oh yeah, Lisa got shot and cause she left her gun out. But, you know, is, is there, we're just is there a reason we never saw the Silver Falcon nightclub? Was was that a budget thing, or because it was just no, in the basement? No, I don't. I think the idea it had I mean, been torn down, though. So. Yeah, yeah, it had been torn down. I think the idea was that by the, you know, even by the nineties, nineteen twenty four was a long time ago. <laughs> right. Well, and it was it was very you know Geraldo Rivera. Al Capone vault kind oh, of yeah. thing happening there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rosso Rivera, Al Capone vault. <laughs> when was that? So that was like mid eighties at the time. That must have been in our minds at the time. So I always really appreciated the world building on this show, and I loved that you gave even the organized crime element of history there to make them feel more real. And on a personal note, at the time this episode aired. I had I was getting into real organized crime history myself. It became an interest of mine, mostly because I had discovered 
a few weeks before this episode aired that my grandfather had done time in Sing Sing for being an associate of Sonny Francesi, the underboss of the Colombo family. Oh, wow. Um, he, that's funny because my grandfather you're so New York sometimes, Greg. Yeah, yeah, yeah n- name dropper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it too. Watch, I'm about to. I'm going to do it too. Uh, only I'm Chicago. My grandfather was in Chicago, the cliche Jewish accountant for the Al Capone crime family. And um. And the big story that my grandmother was afraid to talk about, even when she was in her 80s and everyone else involved was long dead, um, was that one day uh, before my dad was born, but when my uncle Jerry was an infant, Frank Nitty came to my grandparents' apartment in Chicago with two guys and told my grandparents to go for a walk. So they put the baby in the stroller. My grandparents go for a walk with my uncle Jerry. And um, when they come back, there are cops everywhere. And when they walk up, they ask what happened. And someone on the street says, oh, some guy jumped off the roof. And they're pointing up and they see where the, the body is and it's covered with a sheet, but they, uh, they point up to the roof that they assume this guy jumped off of, but just below the roof was their apartment where the windows wide open. So <laughs> what my, so what happened was clearly that Frank Nitty and the other guy threw the third guy oh, out the window of my grandparents' apartment while they were walking the baby, at which point they moved out of Chicago to <laughs> Evans to uh, Glencoe, Illinois just as so they were further away from the action. And then when uh, Prohibition ended, uh, my grandfather transitioned into the legit liquor business. So he was in the liquor business and moved to California and et cetera. But, uh, but he started in the illegal liquor business and then transitioned once Prohibition ended to the legit liquor business, which has nothing to do with gargoyles but I felt the need to top Greg Bashansky's story. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Greg. <laughs> True crime. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you did top me. I mean, my grandfather wasn't involved with any murder or violence. He was a Jewish man also, and uh, he was involved with financial crimes for <laughs> the Columbos. Nice. Darcy. <laughs> and now let's uh, move back to the gangsters here. We never really talked about Tony Dracon. He comes back here. He's got a white streak. Why that change? And also, come to think of it, I think it was a fun decision to depict him as younger. I mean, usually you don't see made guys who are quite that young. I'd say he's mid-20s, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the main reason for the visual change in Tony's look with that sort of white skunk streak was that, um, you know, we're always operating on a tight schedule and we'd gotten the design for Tony in and there wasn't really, for the season one episode that he appeared in and there wasn't really time to change it. But I was never quite happy with it just because he seemed relatively generic compared to the other, you know, uh, the rest of the gang, you know. There, there was Tony and there were three or four other, there was Pal Joey and there were, a big blonde guy and a big brunette and um and then there was glasses and of course glasses were the, was the one who actually seemed really distinctive because he was a black guy and he had glasses right that was making him feel different but tony didn't feel that different to me um visually and now i i loved richard grico's uh performances tony um but visually i just thought he didn't really stand out from the crowd so i came up with this idea to give him uh, that that incident with the gargoyle so sort of scared him that he sort of woke up the next day with this streak of white in his hair. And we'd never explain it. It's just, that's what happened. And then from that point on, and it just really made him stand out. I don't know if it's a Cruella DeVille kind of thing or what, but it just, <laughs> um, you know, it just gave him this visual distinctiveness 
that um, he uh, hadn't had, I thought, up to that point. And in terms of it being young, I feel like, go ahead. I, I'm just thinking, like, if, if you were scared so bad that your hair turned white overnight, you'd think that they would leave, he would leave Elisa way alone after that. <laughs> Let uh, not learn. Yeah. Yeah, let's not learn. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, Tony is uh, uh, determined to be who Tony wants to be. <laughs> um, and I guess, you know, he uh, writes off the... Yeah, I wasn't that scared. <laughs> you know? well, only a fourth of his hair turned white, yeah. so, so three-fourths of him wasn't scared. <laughs> Right, yeah, so. <laughs> um, in terms of making him young, that again, I feel like that's very uh, Michael Reedsian. You know, uh, I mean, I don't have a specific memory, but it feels like you know, uh, if um, the news reporters that cartoons were doing in those days were all like, you know young women, you know, um, let's get our news reporter and make him an old guy, you know, who, uh, is, uh, always sort of, you know, is not taking everything at face value, but is always sort of asking the pointed question that hints that, yeah, I don't trust these people at all. You know, let's make him an old style, you know, Lou Grant type of journalist. Um, or, okay, if everyone's depicting these boss tweed, you know, boss thorn kind of old style gangsters when they're doing gangsters, on, let's do a young guy. You know, that feels very much like a Michael Reeves kind of choice. Um, I could be wrong on this specific thing because I don't have a specific memory of it, but it feels that way to me. That was always sort of Michael's approach was if everybody's doing X, let's do Y. Um, it's a great way to go about things. Really well for us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Tony was, granted this character didn't exist yet, but Tony was more Christopher Moltisante than Don Corleone. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, it's a, that's a weird mix of, I mean, you, you said more Christopher Moltisante than Don Corleone as opposed to Tony Soprano. You know, like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, I could have said it that way too. <laughs> Michael Corleone versus Don Corleone or, or uh, Christopher versus Tony, but no, you, all right. You, you decided to go across two different. Uh, he crossed the streams. Yeah. As I often yeah. do. I just want to see what will happen. Do. I don't know what to do with you, Greg. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Here's something I just wondered. You don't often create New York landmarks willy-nilly, but um, why the Apex Tower instead of the Chrysler Building? Actually, as I recall, a lot of fans for a long time thought it was the Chrysler Building. Well, yeah, the silver gargoyle was at least a, a, a homage to the actual Chrysler gargoyle, right? I mean, it looks very similar. Yeah, I think the the thinking was that if just what we wound up with didn't look enough like the Chrysler building. Um, so it was like, okay, it's a similar building, but it's instead of us saying, Hey, we screwed up doing the Chrysler building. It's like, Oh no, it's a, it's a fictional building, the apex tower. You know, <laughs> that's my guess is that, uh, um, I, you know, the one thing in the episode that I, don't think it was ever quite, I mean, it did the job, but I don't think it quite nailed it, which was that the idea was that you'd see these black birds, these gargoyles that were like these soot black birds. And then Elisa would go over there and she'd sort of rub her sleeve on it. And underneath you'd see this chrome silver falcon, right? And my problem with the episode, and it's a minor one, it's a minor complaint honestly, but is that the birds, the, the falcon statues on the building are neither as soot black as they should be at the beginning, nor as shiny silver once she rubs them as it should be revealed at the end. 
So I think mm. that contrast, you lose a little something in the episode. I think you get the idea because the dialogue basically walks you through the idea. And I do think that Frank found a way to show those birds in advance in a way that was playing fair with the audience, but in a way that 90% of them wouldn't think, oh, there's jewels hidden in the mouth of that bird. Um, like it just wouldn't occur to them. It just is an architectural feature. Um, but the cleverness that's in the dialogue of, oh, they're black. No, they're actually silver, which also would have sort of hooked it up to the Maltese Falcon idea, you know, the painted gold statue that then in the Maltese Falcon actually turns out to be lead. Um, it, that idea of there's something shiny and precious underneath, I don't think the visual quite gives us that. I, I just think that we missed it on both sides. It's neither black enough nor silver enough um, to show us that contrast. Even when she sort of shines it, it barely changes at all. Um, and, uh, and that always was a little bit of a bummer to me. I mean, again, not, I think it all it all works well enough to get the idea across, but not as well as, as I had hoped it would, frankly. Well, the uh, color aside, I, I noticed in watching it, there was a great uh, bit where Broadway's standing on the gargoyle, and he's, that's when he's eavesdropping or whatever, but you don't realize the import of what he's standing on. It's just like a throwaway visual. Right, and that's where I've been about Frank found a great way to sort of show it and play fair yeah. without making such a big deal of it that the audience is going, oh, I get it, you know, <laughs> minutes before the solution is actually revealed. You want people to, when you get to that moment where it's revealed, to, to the one hand be surprised, but on the other hand go, well, of course, what else could the solution be? Um, you know, to have that dual reaction um, is uh, always what you're sort of going for with that kind of mystery reveal, I think. And I think we also got that with the Dominic Dracon reveal, thanks to Eddie. <laughs> no thanks to you and me, but thanks to Eddie. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the best payoffs are the ones that have two or three or four different meanings at once, you know? Yeah. Circling back to um, Carrie's time on classic comic books, ran to different company, but every time I watch this episode and I see Broadway in the trench coat and then the trench coat slowly getting more and more shredded throughout the episode, it just makes me think of Ben Grimm. Well, I think that oh, was, that was, uh, I was intentional, right, Greg? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, well, you know, we're all big Kirby fans at heart, and so that image of Ben Grimm in the trench coat that does not really hide who he is, uh, except in shadows or at a great distance or something like that. But just, you know, that visual is pretty seminal to most of us in the, who spend any time with superheroes whatsoever. And the idea of the monster hero in particular, like the thing or the Hulk or Broadway, you know, who tries to at least temporarily hide who or what he is with the help of a trench coat um, and hat, slouch hat, you know, and trench coat. That's very Kirby. And so, yeah, that was very intentional. That Ben Grimm feel to it um, of the thing. And also, you know, it was just kind of fun because we have this Halloween episode that's going to be coming up soon, which we'll be talking about in a few weeks, I guess. Um, and Broadway's, uh, it's like, where did Broadway get a trench coat and hat? You know? <laughs> oh, well, it was his Halloween costume. Yeah, but it gets destroyed, and then, and then he's wearing it again on Halloween. Does that mean that the Halloween episode came first? No, this came first. He destroyed his costume. He had to get a new one. Bummer, but what are you going to do? Love it. <laughs> you still like the costume. So it's, it's uh, continuity. Yeah, yeah, continuity. 
I should know this, but was he the only gargoyle that wore clothes on any kind of semi-regular basis? Or? Uh, you know, we we periodically do it with, um, you know, we got Halloween leather coming jacket and, at one point. And... Yeah, Brooklyn had the leather jacket when he was trying to be a, you know, join a motorcycle club. <laughs> as one does. And, uh, as one does. And, you know, sunglasses, he tried sunglasses more than once. Daylog wears armor. There's, you know, we, so we tried different things. Um, Demona has all sorts of costumes. So totally. She seems to go back to the old, her standard look, ultimately. But. Uh, I, I should know the answer to this, but uh, the, the Silver Needle, I read a review that said that Silver Needle was in a, another episode as well. In Cleopatra's Needle? Oh, yeah, Cle- Cleopatra's oh. Needle, right. Yeah, it's in the mirror. Right, but the comment I read was, was, yeah, was sort of implying that 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 was done to save money. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very possible. It's like we need them to meet in Central Park, but you can't just say Central Park because it's a big fucking park. You you have to be more specific than that. And we had done Cleopatra's Needle... uh, uh, in, or we knew, I mean, these two episodes were in a row. So, um, my guess is, is that it wasn't designed for either. It was designed for both, but that would save us money. Um, as opposed to having to, uh, come up with another landmark in central park for what was in essence, you know, in both these episodes, you know, two short scenes, um, uh-huh. or sequences, um, why not just use it twice as opposed to, you know, create two things that we'd have to design. Um, and again, it, I think, and I shameless about that because I think it makes the world feel more real. Oh yeah. The needle. We've seen that. Oh, we're seeing it again. You know, right. I mean, if it, I wouldn't do an entire episode around it, you know, get pretty boring, but, uh, but you know, I don't mind reusing a location save a little money and make the world feel more real. Right. Is there anything about this episode we haven't hit up yet? I, uh, I can't really think of anything we haven't covered. Uh, it, was, it was just kind of interesting watching it last night because I think that's literally the first time I looked at it in, you know, 30 years. So it was, I wasn't sure where the story was um, going either at some point. <laughs> how, do, how do you feel, feel like this, it held up? Well, uh, uh, as a as a story that has hidden twists, I thought it worked pretty well. As regarding how it holds up against other Gargoyle episodes, hard to say because I haven't watched any of them in so long. But <laughs> from from what I've been gathering, just reading the comments, it was definitely even at the time considered a a departure. And some people said it was it was like a nice change of pace, or it was maybe the first solo episode or whatever. I mean, it's kind of funny because if you Jumping ahead to the late 90s and aughts and everything, uh, another series that might not seem in any way analogous to this is Walking Dead in terms of they are fearless about doing whole episodes around ancillary characters that you might not necessarily think could carry an episode, and yet they do. And and I think that's another show that took great advantage of its huge cast, finding little nooks and crannies to explore in terms of offbeat plots and stuff like that. So I think in that regard, we were doing that back in the 90s. So. Yeah. I mean, Trailblazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's a note that I do the have. The one thing I, the what? one thought I had last night is that, uh, what I was, you were just saying, is there anything left? And, and the one thing that I kind of still had last night watching it was that, um, I wrote my notes was, uh, everything's better with gargoyles. Like, you watch the scene from the old movie that Broadway's watching, and it's it's, it's okay. It's kind of eh, you know. Uh, but you see that same scene reproduced, but with Broadway in the role of the detective. Um, you know, and it's very it's like so much fun. You know? <laughs> It's much better with gargoyles. Everything's better with gargoyles. <laughs> That's true. I, I love that Broadway is just flicking his finger in Tony's face and knocks him out. <laughs> That's also, that's very Ben Grimm, too. That's also very the thing. You know, that one finger flick. 
Ben Grimm stone fingers, you know, knocking someone out and Broadway doing that. I think it's also Kirby. It's it's too bad we never got to see Broadway's Hamlet. That would have been interesting. We see him do Romeo. He did Romeo? Yep, in The Journey. Yeah, in in The Journey. Well, see, that that, that shows you how much I know. (laughs) One of my favorite lines in the episode, I laugh every time I hear it, it comes from glasses, and it has to be, that wacko dame took a dive. (laughs) (laughs) The whole whole scene on that building and on that falcon is just like... I just the heights and the wind and everything just really is uh, very effective on making you realize that they are very high up and this is very dangerous. That, that, yeah. that was a very spry ninety-year-old, wasn't it? Right. <laughs> very determined. Yeah. Very spry, very determined. And the fun thing, the funny thing is, is that you know when Elisa goes out initially, she's pretty confident Broadway is there, and in fact he is. But the second time, he's gone. Um, he's gone. She's got no backup there. And yeah, that's he's real. I think the phrase "leap of faith" comes to mind. Jump of faith. Um, Dive of faith. <laughs> no, it's a great sequence. I think you said Dominic Dracon ended up in Bellevue after this is all over. I remember in the non-canon radio play he was one of the ravencroft prisoners but i mean did this completely break Uh, him or is he just trying to avoid prosecution well you see now that uh there's a new comic coming out i my answer has to be no spoilers nice who knows what we're gonna come (laughs) oh (laughs) excellent so so greg how many issues is that going to be is that a miniseries or uh for now it's i mean I've been, we've been guaranteed six, but, uh, I mean, I think everybody would like it to be more, but I, I, unsurprisingly, it depends a bit on sales. You know, if, it, if the, if the six issues sells well, then I think they'll want to make more. If it doesn't sell well, then all right, we did six issues. Um, so it's really about, you know, do fans old and new show up and buy the dang thing, you know, um, um, I've finished the first script. I'm working on the second out of six. Um, and I'm really happy with it so far. I mean, yeah, not even halfway through it, but, um, but I'm, you know, it's just so fun to be working on these characters again. I'm thrilled. Uh, so hopefully the fan base feels that way. And, 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 people who are just discovering gargoyles feel that way and, and it sells well enough so that they want to keep going. But we know we're getting six, so at minimum. And we're going to do everything we can to help you push it. Thank you. All right. Um, I think we can begin to wrap things up. Carrie, I would like to thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure to speak with with you finally. We had 13 gargoyles cons and um, it's always nice to get guests on here who we've never been, unfortunately never been able to meet through those. Like, um, so far you, Jonathan Frakes, Roy Sato, and hopefully there'll be more to come. And, um, it was also nice to hear some stories about Greg, who we've known for a very long time from (laughs) before. (laughs) Thank you. It was fun. Does anyone have any projects they would like to plug? I wish I did. I'm, I'm working on a couple of things, but, uh, you know, as, as they say, you know, to be, uh, to be announced when, when and if they do happen. Uh, the one thing I've got that you guys know about uh, is that uh, Young Justice Targets is continuing to come out. Uh, I, at the time we're recording this, I think the first two issues are out. The third one should be out soon. Um, and it's a six-issue Young Justice miniseries from DC Comics uh, picks up right where season four left off. Yeah, this is going up on September 30th. So, I don't know. By then, we'll have three or four issues out probably. Something like that. I'm not sure. Also, the release is sort of odd because it released first on DC Comics Infinite and then uh, like a month later comes out in print version and um, so 
hard to keep track of exactly when each issue comes out, but uh, uh, yeah, by September, I would say that a handful of them will be out, but a handful are yet to come, and I hope people scoop them up and help us save our 16. <laughs> and we'll definitely be helping you push that, too. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you both again for coming on. I want to thank our audience for listening. Jen, I want to thank you. I know you stayed late at the office to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. Very late. And to our listeners, join us next time for Eye of the Beholder. That's a great one. Dame took a dive.